and change that data. Better get off that slide. Uh, so just reviewing here for a moment uh, on the introduction last time, we were looking at uh, some of the differences that we notice between the Old Testament as we leave the Old Testament and the book of Malachi or Ezra Nehemiah in the historical section, the last days of the Old Testament around 400 BC. And we noticed a lot of things we talked about last time, like Pharisees and Sadducees. We'll see where they came from this evening, hopefully. And lots of other things that, like the high priest who has taken on a political function, lots of things like that that are not in the Old Testament. And so uh, we want to uh, you know, study those and understand those as we go forward. We, uh, we uh, let me minimize this here a little bit. Okay. So we, um, looking at the uh, first thing is the history of the intertestamental period. That'll be our first section we're under right now. Then we'll get into some of the other areas, the cultural, the literature of the, the Apocrypha and so forth. <clears throat> we're going to be studying the Apocrypha some, the Apocrypha books, Old Testament Apocrypha. And um, I'm thinking about exactly what we want to do with that. Um, it'd be, uh, I'm, we're going to study some of those books and uh, we'll kind of read some of them maybe. Uh, I'm, I'm going to send you a link for a, copy of the Bible that has those in there. There's a, a nice edition, the new revised standard version with the Apocrypha. And uh, I'm going to send that to you if you want to purchase one, just in case you do. Um, our Bibles that we have, our Protestant Bibles, don't contain the Apocrypha. Um, Bibles did. The King James had the Apocrypha. All early English Bibles had the Apocrypha, including the King James. <clears throat> Even though those people who produced those Bibles, all of them, did not think the Apocrypha was part of the Scripture, part of the canonical Scriptures. But there's a long tradition that we'll talk about, about including the Apocrypha. But in America, it's never been a tradition to include the Apocrypha, except, of course, in Catholic Bibles. So uh, there is a, a nice edition that I often use, the New Revised Standard Version with the Apocrypha, good translation. But I will send you all um, that link, but then I'll send, you, um, I'll send you the copies of the books that we read. I think I'll do that. I'll send you, if you want to read those ahead of time, you can, if you're interested in kind of taking a look and seeing what these books are like, what they're about. Some of them are very short, like two pages, some of the books, like, Susanna, just a couple pages. But we'll be talking about some of the long ones like Tobit, things like that. So I'll be sending that to you the days ahead. But first, we're, we're covering the history. And we talked about uh, the uh, kingdom of Israel. Um, and we, we started there with uh, uh, David and Solomon and discussed... Um, 
how that uh, David uh, became king over Israel and Judah, both the 12 tribes, and then Solomon, and they expanded their kingdom to a very large area. They were a kind of a major player in the ancient Near East because other places like Assyria, Babylon, Media, uh, the Parthians, they were uh, in decline at that time. But then uh, the kingdom was divided between Israel and uh, Judah. Uh, you had Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and you had uh, the division of the kingdom. Israel had pretty much all these kings were pretty wicked. Judah had some good kings, as we talked about. Um, and then we had the various uh, captivities. We had the Assyrian captivity, uh, we usually call it. Here's actually a chart of, uh, it was in your notes, I think last week, of the various uh, periods that we're looking at here, the Assyrian Empire, then the Babylonian period. So these empires, are, they're around, Assyria's around, Babylon's around, but they come into uh, prominence at various stages of the history of the ancient Near East. So um, the first one, of course, is the Assyrian Empire. Um, and the Assyrians uh, um, conquer the northern 10 tribes, Israel, in 722 BC and they take Israel off into captivity. And they settle in lands in the Assyrians. The Assyrians had the idea, remember I said that they would remove people from their land so they couldn't rebel. This is not a policy far, followed by other countries that, that follow, especially like the Persians, who kept people generally in their territories. But the Assyrians uh, and the Babylonians tended to move people out and move other people in. And uh, this is what happened to the north, to the tribes. Now, some of these people, I didn't mention last week, but some of these people uh, in Israel fled south to Judah. There's often talk about the lost tribes. And down through history, various groups have claimed to be the lost tribes of Israel. Uh, like the Mormons <laughs> and others have claimed they're the lost tribes of Israel, you know. Uh, but some of these people from the north uh, fled south to Judah. Some went to Egypt. There's always been a strong Jewish presence in Egypt, as we'll see. And so uh, after that, of course, came the Babylonian captivity. 722, the Assyrians took the north and the south was still a vassal. They were still, they were not actually controlled directly by them. In other words, you had Judean kings, but ultimately Babylon takes control of even the south and they carry off people from Judah in the captivity. Uh, in 605, the first one, Daniel, is taken off and his friend, six. 597, they take off some more. They're mostly taking uh, higher-ups, that is, aristocrats, uh, 
they're taking people with wealth, people who have skills, and they're leaving a very poor people in the land. Five, 586, Babylon destroys the temple, Jerusalem, carries people off. <clears throat> and again, people, people escape from, from there. They don't all, they, some of the people escape and go to, to, to uh, Egypt. But what's left is uh, very poor people who a lot of them don't have any skills. It's a pretty difficult situation. Not, not the craftsmen. And they settle in Babylon. And uh, as we said, they, they stayed there. A lot of them stayed there. And there's a long tradition of Jews in this area. Uh, Jewish documents, Jewish literature come out of this area. Uh, manuscript copying. There's a, there's a long tradition here in Babylon. Uh, so now we come to the Persian period. We've got the Persian period, then we'll see the Hellenistic period, the Hasmonean, Maccabean period, and the Roman period. So we're looking now at the uh, Persian period, um, 539 to 331 BC. So just like the Assyrians became powerful, the Babylonians, they faded, and now the Persians become uh, very, very powerful. And under the Persians, the Jews are allowed to return back and build the temple and then later rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. A lot of times these ancient powers would let people come back or they'd let them maintain their cities, but they would tear down their walls so they didn't have any defenses, so they couldn't mount revolts and things like that. So initially the Jews were allowed to come back, rebuild the temple, 538, Zerubbabel, as we'll see, then 458 Ezra, 445 Nehemiah came back to build the walls. So the first ruler we want to talk about is the what we think of as the founder of the uh, Persian Empire, and that's Cyrus II, or usually his epithet is Cyrus the Great, just like Alexander the Great and so forth. 539 to 530 uh, BC. I say here uh, in 559 BC, Cyrus at the age of 40 inherited the small kingdom of Anshan near Susa. I'll show you a map in a moment. A tributary to Media. Media is another power in the ancient Near East, which was a revival rival to Babylon. <clears throat> in 549, he revolted and overthrew the Median monarchy at Ecbatana. In 547, he defeated Croesus, the king of Lydia. And finally, in 539, he took Babylon. So let's just look at a map here for a second, and we'll come back to this. Uh, we're showing here the conquest of Cyrus the Great. Um, so the first thing he does um, in 540. 549, he goes to Ecbatana here. Let me see if I can uh, uh, bring up this. Ooh, no, I don't know what to do. Um, hmm, wants to switch on me here. I don't think we want that. Uh, it's trying to bring up that pointer thing. But okay, there it is. 
just touch it. So let me annotate this a little bit if I can with the spotlight here. Let's see if I can choose a spot. Okay. All right. So um, I'm thinking about, if you can see that, Ekbatana there. He uh, wins a battle there in Ekbatana, and this is in the 549. And then he comes over all the way to Lydia here. Here's an ancient kingdom of Lydia, and he defeats uh, Croesus here, the ancient kingdom of Lydia. Now, in the New Testament, we know a lot about this area because Paul has his missionary journeys there. Here's Galatia. Here's Ephesus over here. And uh, remember, when Paul goes to Philippi over here in Greece, uh, Acts 16, he meets a, a lady from named Lydia, <laughs> who was a seller of purple from Thyatira over here. And people speculate about her name, Lydia. Uh, is that a real name? Is that sort of a title because it's the ancient kingdom of Lydia. We, it's hard to know. A lot of Romans had the name Lydia, but that's an ancient kingdom and he defeats them. And then finally uh, in 539, he comes down here and takes the city of Babylon. So he's, he's, he's building an empire here uh, with his uh, defeats of enemies. And I say the uh, vast area of the Babylonian empire was quickly incorporated into the Persian empire. Uh, and Cyrus allowed the dispersed conquered nations, including the Jews, um, to return to their homeland. So his policy was, uh, he didn't try to suppress the religions of the people he conquered like some, some rulers did. Uh, he thought that people would be happier and more peaceful if they were in their homeland, doing their own religion, having their own faith and so forth. And, and that was his policy. And he even supported, as I say here, their restoration were necessary. And uh, the Jews returned under Zerubbabel in 538, 539 BC, around that time. That's Ezra chapter 236. That's the first return. And they returned to rebuild the temple. The rebuilding began in 536, ceased in 530. And uh, remember Haggai and stuff about, you know, you're building your houses, but not the temple. And he didn't, didn't, didn't begin again until about 520 BC. So that was the first return, the return to, uh, to build uh, the temple. Here shows a map showing the returns. You've got the, the purple return here is the path of Zerubbabel here, this purple return. And the next returns over here are Ezra and Nehemiah. The red is Ezra and Nehemiah. And we'll see their returns shortly here. So the first return, Zerubbabel, that's his path. And uh, he returns to begin the building of the temple. We come to Cambyses II, 530 to 522. So after his father's death, Cambyses took control of the Persian empire. He conquered Egypt. So he added, he added Egypt to the empire. He had to return home when an imposter named Galmata took the name of his dead brother, Bardinia, and tried to usurp the throne. Cambyses died returning 
from Egypt. A lot of the historians, the Jewish, the Greek historians talk a lot about this man and what happened to him. Why did he die? Some people say he committed suicide and hard to know what happened to him. Well, after him, uh, we come to Darius, Darius the first, 522 to 486. Um, he was one of Cambyses' officers. Darius took control of the army and marched them home to deal with the insurrection. He put down the revolt, seized the throne for himself, and executed Gaumata. He permitted the Jews to finish rebuilding the temple in 516. That's Ezra 6. So here the, the temple was started years ago. It's finally finished in 516. Darius failed in two expeditions to conquer Greece in 492 and 490. The Athenians defeated the Persians at Mar Marathon. He died while planning a third. So uh, um, this is uh, Jerusalem at the time of Zerubbabel, the first return. Here's the city of David here where the walls were. So the walls originally were all this area here under Solomon, this area here. This is the Western Hill. And uh, so there was a valley here and a valley here and a valley here. And then there was another hill here, uh, Western Hill, which is, becomes vastly populated over time. Uh, a lot bigger than the old Mount Zion or the city of David. And uh, they get their water from the Gihon Spring. It comes down here through a tunnel, especially dug by Hezekiah when the Assyrians were getting ready to invade in 586. Um, Pansy and I actually, when we went to, Drew, uh, went to Israel, we walked through this tunnel, 700, 1,700 feet water up to kind of our ankles or even higher sometimes, higher sometimes. Higher sometimes. But uh, this is the Temple Mount, and so they're rebuilding the temple here. Um, this is, um, I guess something out of order here. Let me go back to this for a moment. Uh, I was just showing here um, Darius. This is the extent now of the Persian Empire. Uh, they've conquered Egypt. They have all this area here. And this is just showing uh, the Persians actually came over and conquered Macedonia over here, and they tried to conquer Greece. And they have a couple attempts at it here, Xerxes does, but this is Darius trying to do it. And uh, they're always fighting over this little area right here on the western coast of what we think of as Turkey today. There were Greek settlements over here, and, and eventually a lot of them but they tried to um, defeat the Greeks. And this is where the famous battle of Thermopylae um, occurs. Um, um, I mean, the, I'm excuse me, yeah, uh, at Marathon, the Battle of Marathon occurs here. Um, Thermopylae's later, but this is the Battle of uh, Marathon. And this is the, the battle from which the, the marathon race supposedly comes from. So according to, according to uh, tradition, the Athenians uh, defeated the Persians at a place called Marathon right here. 
And supposedly a runner ran from Marathon all the way back to Athens, 26 some miles, you know, the distance of the marathon race, ran back uh, uh, 26 miles and uh, he shouted, uh, which means we have conquered, we've won. <laughs> and uh, he died, supposedly he died, uh, just fell down dead from exhaustion from that 26 miles. And from that distance is where the, the marathon race comes from. So Darius was trying to uh, defeat that, defeat them, but he couldn't do it. Xerxes comes along next, Xerxes the first. Uh, he was the son, uh, let's see, somebody's writing on the thing here. Uh, <laughs> uh, don't write on the screen, let's see, how do I do that? I forgot how to undo. Later. Yeah, well, it's going to be on the screen forever here. Just a second. Let me. Okay. Okay. So uh, Xerxes the first, 486 to 465. He's the son of Darius, mentioned in some Bible translation as Hasuerus. Hasuerus. Um, so there's a question. He has a he has a Hebrew name. Hasuarius, and that's what's in the Hebrew text, actually. If you look at the Hebrew text, it says Ahasuerus. And the King James, New American Standard, they stick with the uh, Hebrew name, his Hebrew name. But he is known in history um, more commonly by his Greek name, Xerxes. And so the NIV has chosen to go with the, the Greek name. I'm just using the Greek name here. So uh, he's the husband of Esther. We know the story of Esther, and he's her husband. He attempted to conquer Greece, and he actually captured Athens, but he was uh, later decisively defeated by the Greeks at a place called Salamis in 480. He was murdered by Artabanus, a usurper. And so that's the second, uh, uh, let's see here. Doesn't want to. Screen doesn't want to advance here. Uh, <laughs> I seem to be stuck. Mm, let's see here. Take that out and see if that. Okay, that makes a difference. Good. Um. So this is the Battle of Thermopylae over here. Another famous battle. Um, they have, there was a movie about that, this, uh, that came out a few years ago, I think called the 300. And, uh, this is where at this battle, a small, um, a small force of Greek warriors led by King Leonidas from Sparta resisted a much larger Persian, uh, force in that famous battle there but they were ultimately defeated because a, a Greek, a guy from Greece betrayed them. And he showed the, he showed the Persians a way through a pass to get around behind them. And they ultimately just defeated them. But uh, even though they won that battle and got to Athens, they were ultimately defeated in a sea battle uh, at Salamis and uh, ultimately 
ended their advances on Greece uh, forever, Xerxes. Um, we come then to uh, Artaxerxes the first. Uh, he's the son of Xerxes and rightful heir. He killed Artabanus, the usurper, assumed the throne. He allowed Ezra, who was essentially the minister of all Jewish affairs in the region, to return in 458. And Nehemiah returned in 445 to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem as governor of Judea. And so here's those returns again of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra comes back and he is a priest and a, uh, a scribe, as he's called, and he is given really a power. Uh, he's really the ruler. He's a religious ruler. And this is the beginning we're going to see of a combination of, of a religious ruler and a political ruler in one particular person, sort of. And so he is giving uh, uh, control over the area, and he comes back 458 uh, to the area, and then Nehemiah returns uh, 445 and rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. And here's Jerusalem at the time of Nehemiah. The walls we're talking about are these walls here. Uh, Why my annotate uh, went away, but it did here. Try to get back. So we're talking about these walls here. Um, so there are things over here, but uh, developing, but there's no walls yet. These are later walls, would be here in the time of Jesus, New Testament time. So here's the Temple Mount and the Afel is really the area here we think of as Mount Zion, city of David, so forth. Um, Nehemiah. Here's what uh, an artist's conception of what this would have looked like um, in that time. We think there was development here on the Western Hill, but no walls and so forth. But here would be the the walls around the city, and uh, of course the temple up here on the north side. Um, so uh, we come now to the period of Persian decline, 424 to 330. I say here a uh, series of weaker rulers followed in this period that was uneventful for the Jews. The empire weakened, local regions began to rebel, uh, Egypt rebelled, and was lost during the reign of Artaxerxes II. Um, at this time now, Greece is rising as a great power. So they defeated the Persians, um, the various Greek city-states are becoming more powerful, they're trading in the Mediterranean and so forth. And so uh, um, Persia is in decline. Uh, Egypt rebelled, gained its independence during this time and so forth. The last ruler of the Persian empire was Darius III who was defeated by Alexander the Great in 330. 
That brings us then to the Grecian period, 330 to 143 BC. We are now at least between the Testaments. <laughs> we, finally, we finally got to some between the Testament history here. And the first person we wanna talk about is Alexander the Great, 336 to 323. Uh, I say here about 350 BC, Philip II came to the throne of Macedonia a territory in what is now largely northern Greece. At, time, at that time, the Greece was, was made up of independent city-states like Athens, Sparta, Thebes, Corinth. So this is approximate map to show Macedonia's up here, of course, and uh, today would be part of Greece. In the New Testament, uh, we have the province of Macedonia up here, and Achaia down here where Corinth is at, Philippi, Thessalonica up in Macedonia. But he's a Macedonian, um, Philip is, and you have these independent city-states. So this, this places like Athens and Sparta, they fought battles, the Peloponnesian War. <laughs> they fought all kinds of battles to get uh, against each other. But when a common enemy would come along, they would, some, they would sometimes band together. And they... Uh, they had a league of a Hellenic, Hellenic League, and they would band together and try to defend from outsiders like the Persians. Um, so uh, Philip, uh, I say, brought the entire uh, Greek peninsula under his control, only to be assassinated in 336. And he was succeeded by his 20-year-old son, Alexander, whose schoolmaster had been the great philosopher Aristotle. So Philip had brought Aristotle from Greece, Athens, to come to and, and educate him, Alexander. And within two years, Alexander set out to conquer the far-reaching Persian Empire. So Alexander was thoroughly Greek in his thinking, philosophy, and so forth. Here's Alexander. Um, uh, Alexander, as I say, was thoroughly Greek. Uh, he, he imbibed it totally. He, he carried with him on his journeys uh, copies of the Iliad and Odyssey, uh, Homer's, you know, epics. Uh, and uh, he was sold on what was called the excellencies of the Greek way of life, Greek thinking, Greek living. And in a series of battles over the uh, next two years, he gained control of territory from Asia Minor, um, you know, including Palestine and everything. Uh, according to, uh, if I kind of show this here, um, he um, he starts off here, if you can see, in Greece, Macedonia, and uh, he moves over into what we think of as Asia Minor, the ancient kingdom of Lydia. He conquers all this, and he defeats the Persians. Um, um, he defeats the Persians in a series of battles, and comes down here. Let me just 
go back to here. Uh, I say, uh, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, Alexander apparently went to Jerusalem, offered sacrifices to God in the temple under the direction of the high priest uh, Jehuda, Jedua, and was shown from the book of Daniel that he was predicted to destroy the Persian temple. This is what uh, Persian empire. Uh, this is what Josephus, a Jewish historian, we'll talk about Josephus later on. He, he was a contemporary of uh, Paul Jesus, lived in the first century uh, AD. Uh, but that's, a, that's, a, that's something he says, and some people dispute it, but that's what he says. He accepted, uh, he accepted this interpretation, according to uh, Josephus, and granted the Jews a request that the Jews in Palestine, Babylonia, and Media be allowed to live according to their ancestral laws and be exempt from tribute every sabbatical year. So looking again at Alexander's campaigns, he comes first of all here and defeats Darius III in one battle uh, at 333. And instead of going all the way on to uh, over, over into Persian territory here, he decides to cover his flank here and he comes down and this is where he comes to Jerusalem, takes this area, comes over to Egypt and he doesn't face any particular opposition. He establishes the city of Alexandria here. And then he comes back and uh, so he defeats the, the, the Persians first here, actually right here at the Gricus River. Uh, and then he defeats him again, uh, and that's 334. 333 at ISIS here, right here, first here, first here. And then over here, finally, he totally, uh, in 331 uh, at Gagamila, he totally destroys the Persian Empire or army. And then he just marches along. He marches down here uh, over all the way this area. Most places he doesn't face much opposition, goes all the way practically to India in this valley here. And then all the way back, uh, um, right to here where he dies. And that's what I say there. Um, Alexander uh, conquered uh, uh, most of the known world at 33 and he died of a fever. I uh, never made it back to, to Greece. Uh, he made Greek the lingua franca of the known world, replacing Aramaic. If you remember the Assyrians and then the Persians, uh, they had their main language, their international language, their lingua franca was Aramaic. And uh, <clears throat> we said that when the Jews went into captivity, especially into Babylon and came back, they spoke as their main speaking language, everyday language, Aramaic, though they still knew Hebrew and probably a good number spoke Hebrew, but not all. Um, and they uh, read the scriptures in Hebrew and so forth. Though when they came back, as we'll see in the synagogues, they would translate Hebrew into Aramaic because not everybody understood Hebrew. And um, so that was the international language until Alexander the Great comes along. And Alexander the Great, uh, he brings Greek language, Greek culture to the known world. And this continues right up to the New Testament period. So that's why 
the New Testament is written in Greek exclusively because throughout the world, uh, Greek was the universal language in the, in the Mediterranean and the ancient world at that time. Even though people had their own languages, the Jews still spoke Hebrew and spoke Aramaic. Probably most Jews spoke Aramaic in Judea, at least on an everyday basis, but someone like the Apostle Paul would have known Greek extremely well, obviously, and others did too. Uh, he conquered, uh, he introduced Greek ideas, I said, in culture. This is called Hellenism. Hellenism. Uh, the Greek word for Greek is Hellene. So the Greeks call them Hellene, it means Greek. And so to make things Greek, Greek culture, Greek ideas, Greek language is called Hellenism. And sometimes we call the Greek of this period Hellenistic Greek. You'll hear the term Koine Greek, common Greek. So he made Greek very common, uh, universal, Koine, common, or Hellenistic Greek. Um, when Alexander died in 323 BC, I say here, power struggles among his generals ensued. Each took a general took a portion of the vast empire. Over nearly a half a century, numerous battles were fought between Alexander's successor successors, each seeking to gain a larger share of the empire. Uh, finally, in about 301, things began to stabilize. Um, Egypt and Palestine went to Ptolemy, one of his generals. Phrygia, as far as the Indus, including Syria, to Seleucus. Uh, Thrace and Bithynia to Lysimachus. Uh, and Macedonia um, and Greece to Cassander. Now, Palestine was caught in the middle between the Ptolemaic Empire centered in Egypt, having Alexandria as its capital, and the Seleucid capital centered in Syria, having Antioch as its capital. Okay, get rid of that. So here is um, I don't want to do that. Just going to get my pointer back, but didn't want to give it back. Um, so here is that how things stood in around 300 BC. The two uh, powers we're concerned about are the green here. This these are the Seleucids. And over here are the Ptolemies. Now, these are the names of generals, but they become dynastic names. They become the names of the, of the powers of the, of the kingdoms, the Seleucid kingdom. Now, it goes very far here. It takes over all this area, but it also includes this area we call Syria, just north here, including Damascus. This land, this is a Greek term, Syria, similar to Assyria. This area here, it includes this area right here. And eventually we'll see the, Assyri the Seleucids lose all this stuff over here to the east. And it's kind of restricted to this area right here. So the Ptolemies down here in Egypt and the Seleucids are battling back and forth. They want control of the Levant here. This the Levant is the geographical name for this area along the coast here. They want control of that. And so they are uh, constantly fighting uh, for this particular area. 
Um, the the both both uh, dynasties believed that this was their territory. There were some initial uh, arguments about who would control Palestine here, and the the uh, Ptolemies won out at first, but the Seleucids didn't really. They thought they got cheated. And so there was there were always arguments about this going back and forth. I can so hear first it. of all, we have Ptolemaic rule. Was there a question there? I heard somebody's microphone. That's it. No. Uh, <laughs> somebody's writing again. I can't get the uh, thing to come up there. Uh, I can't do it. Anyway, um, let's talk about Seleucid rule, 198 to 143. Um, I'm sorry, Ptolemaic rule here. Ptolemaic rule. Um, 323 to 198. So we said, first of all, the Ptolemies, named after the general Ptolemy, uh, controlled Palestine, controlled Israel and Judah, the old area of Israel, 323 to 198. Ptolemy, a Macedonian com uh, companion of Alexander, ruled Egypt. With the passing of time, he designated himself Pharaoh of Egypt. Ptolemy I, Soter. Soter is the Greek word for savior. He established the Ptolemaic line, founded the Great Library of Alexandria. So the greatest library in the ancient world with thousands of scrolls was uh, all the all books were scrolls then alexander was in alexandria <clears throat> and resettled many jews in alexandria so jews had gone there because of the captivities but he forced some jews to settle there and jews had a district there in alexandria were prominent in some areas some jews came into the army uh, Ptolemy I and his successors ruled Palestine until 198. The Jews fared well in the Ptolemies, that is the Jews back in Palestine. Tribute was paid to the Egyptian government, but the Jews had a high degree of self-rule in which the high priest and elders, council of elders, governed the province according to the law of Moses, thus continuing the situation established under Ezra. So we have the high priest who is a religious leader and a political leader and a council of elders. This eventually becomes known as what's called the Sanhedrin, time we get to the New Testament, but it'll be called the Sanhedrin before this, but this is what develops into the Sanhedrin with the high priest over it, both a religious body and a judicial or governing body. Um, uh, during this, uh, uh, during this uh, time, uh, the Jews really controlled their own religion, their own government. Uh, Jews were required to start making, Jewish males were required to start making their annual, their three visits to Jerusalem. Remember in the Old Testament, the Old Testament law requires that all males make three trips to Jerusalem for the, for the three major feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Three times a year, all Jews were required to be in Jerusalem for those feasts. And so they reinstituted that. They made people who lived outside of the Palestine, uh, they 
required them to pay an annual temple tax of half a shekel to help support the temple, maintenance of the temple, and so forth. What was also important to us, we'll study this in some detail a little later, is the translation of the Old Testament into Greek at this time. That's a very important document, extremely important. It's called the Septuagint. Septuagint. Uh, the word Septuagint means 70, and so one tradition, we'll talk about this later, says that 70 men translated the Bible from Hebrew and Aramaic and Daniel and a few other portions into Greek. Uh, so this happened, you know, around 250 BC. Um, it happened during the reign of Ptolemy II, uh, Philadelphus, who reigned from 285 to 247, probably around 280, but sometimes you just hear the date 250. You might hear Pastor Ken and he'll talk, he might say something about the, Sept, the Greek, the Septuagint, he'll say 250 BC, just a rough date. But sometime that was translated. And that becomes very important because as Greek is the language uh, of the world, the lingua franca, then people could read the Old Testament because now it's in Greek. And so this would be the language of the Apostle Paul and the language of his Gentile churches. He established churches in Gentile areas, in Corinth, in Philippi, in Ephesus. And these people, their initial Bible would have been the Septuagint, the Greek translation, just like most of us don't read Greek or Hebrew, so we read our Bible in English. So these people, even these Jews, read their Bible in Greek. So a very important development took place in Egypt. Um, we come now to the Seleucid rule, uh, 198 to 143. Um, we come first to the period of Seleucid control, 198 to 168. The Seleucids, that's the dynastic name, or Syria. So I'm gonna be using those sort of interchangeable. Syria is the geographical area that we're talking about, north of Israel, Damascus, and north there into Antioch. Actually, Antioch was the capital founded by Antiochus, as we'll see one of the one of the uh, rulers here. Um, the, the Seleucids tried to gain control of Palestine by marriage alliances and invasions. Uh, all these failed until the Seleucid ruler Antiochus III defeated Egypt in 198 BC. So here's another dynastic name. You got the Seleucid, uh, uh, Seleucids and their, they, all their kings, a lot of them are named Antiochus. <laughs> And so that's where the name Antioch in the New Testament comes from, Antioch in Syria, uh, <clears throat> and then you know, Antioch of Pisidia that Paul visits on his first missionary journey. There were apparently about 16 different towns in the ancient world named Antioch because of these rulers, all who had the name Antiochus. Just like in the United States, there's a lot of, lot, every, almost every state has a city named Washington or Lincoln, something like that. So they fared pretty well under Antiochus. He took over uh, 198. Um, when his son, Antiochus IV, came to the throne, he was determined to consolidate his diverse territories by pursuing a policy of Hellenization, particularly in Israel. Get rid of this you know, Jewish religion. We want to have Greek religion, Greek culture. 
Antiochus styled, uh, styled himself Theos Epiphanes, which means God manifest, declaring himself to be the earthly manifestation of Zeus. <clears throat> Remember, Zeus is the head of the Greek pantheon the, on Mount Olympus, uh, the head God. Um, so this is um, the empire of the Seleucids at this time. I'm just kind of showing that, concentrating on Judea here, where they have now taken over. So this was once controlled, this was not green, this was controlled by the uh, Ptolemies, but now the Seleucids are firmly in control. I say uh, number two here, up to this time, the office of high priest had been hereditary and held for life. But Antiochus replaced the Orthodox high priest Onias III with his brother, Jason, in 174 BC, who was more fabled to Greek culture and paid Antiochus more money. So he was essentially, uh, people were buying the priesthood here. Jason planned to make Jerusalem into a Greek city. A gymnasium with an adjoining racetrack was built. Jewish lads exercised nude in Greek fashion to the outrage of pious Jews. The track races opened with invocations to pagan deities and even Jewish priests attended such events. So now you're gonna get a split among the people. You're gonna have more orthodox, more conservative people who are trying to hold on to the Jewish religion. You have others who are adapting to Hellenistic culture and morals. Helleniz Hellenization also included attendance at Greek theaters, adoption of Greek dress, surgery to remove the marks of circumcision, and exchange of Hebrew for Greek names. Um, Jews opposed uh, to the paganization of their culture were called the Hasidim, meaning holy or pious ones. So there was opposition to this, and they're named Hasidim, holy or pious ones. Antiochus next sold the high priesthood to another Jew named Menelaus, who was a thoroughgoing Hellenist. Pious Jews naturally resented the selling of the sacred office of high priest to the highest bidder, especially since Menelaus was not of the priestly family. In 170, Jason comes back and takes control of Jerusalem from Menelaus. Well, let's come to... Um, the revenge of, or the vengeance of Antiochus, 168 to 167. To keep the Ptolemies in check, so remember uh, the Seleucids, Antiochus the, the third uh, had conquered uh, uh, Palestine, but the Ptolemies were always, the Egyptians were always a force to be reckoned with. So he decides uh, in 168, Antiochus IV leads a second attack on Egypt and also sent a fleet to Cyprus. So he's already defeated them once, but now he's going to make a second attack and kind of go in and clean things up. <clears throat> he took control of most of the country with the exception of Alexandria, the capital. Well, this action displeased the Roman Senate. So Rome now is becoming a power. We said, you know, Greece was coming a power before, but now Rome is becoming a power a major power in the Mediterranean world and in the, in the, in the, middle, the ancient Near East. 
and they're beginning to conquer territory. We'll talk about them next time a little bit. And so this action displeased the Roman Senate, which uh, dispatched an elderly, single elderly ambassador, uh, Linnaeus here, to confront Antiochus before he entered Alexander, Alexandria, directing him to withdraw his armies from Egypt and Cyprus because uh, Antiochus had tried to go over, he sent some forces over to Cyprus to invade that area also. And uh, this is kind of showing his campaigns into Egypt here. And he comes over here in his second campaign uh, to, um, to Alexandria. And so Rome doesn't like this because here he is into Alexandria again. He's into Cyprus. Uh, what's this guy doing? He, he, Antiochus envisions himself as a person who can take on Rome, but he soon, he, but he, but he really, he really doesn't have the stomach for it. And in one of the most, uh, uh, memorable confrontations in history, the Romans send this very elderly fellow by himself, this ambassador to Alexandria to confront Antiochus and right outside of Alexandria, this Roman ambassador draws a circle around Antiochus and he demands that he swear that he will leave Egypt uh, he, before he leaves the circle. And if he leaves that circle before he swears, you know, to leave Egypt, then he's going to be at war with Rome. <laughs> so they really put, lay down the gauntlet. And so he was fearful, uh, from what we understand, of a direct conflict with Rome at that time. And so he decides he'll just leave. And uh, that doesn't make him very happy. So he comes back to Jerusalem in 167. It's kind of great embarrassment and people know it. He found that Jason had driven Menelaus out of the city because Menelaus had replaced Jason, you remember, because he gave more money to be high priest. Antiochus viewed this as a full revolt. He invaded the city and allowed his troops to kill many of its residents. He ordered a cultic Hellenization in Palestine and forbade the Jews to keep their ancestral laws and to observe the Sabbath, customary festivals, traditional sacrifices, and the circumcision of their children. He also ordered the destruction of copies of the law. It was a capital offense to be found with a copy of the law. Idolatrous altars were set up and Jews were commanded to offer unclean sacrifices and to eat swine's flesh. On Kislev, that would be uh, December, the month of December. Remember, the Jews have this different calendar than we do. They have a lunar calendar of 30 days a month. So they have um, 12 months of 30 days is 360 days. That means they're five days short, which means every six years they have to add an extra month to make up, to get back in, in sequence. So this was on the, the month Kislev, which is in December, the 25th, 167. Uh, the temple of Jerusalem became the place of worship of the Olympian Zeus with signs, swine's flesh offered on the altar, erected on the altar of burnt offering. Now this is predicted in the book of Daniel. 
This is also mentioned in First and Second Maccabees. Now we'll talk about these books because these are apocryphal books and uh, we'll talk about them. And they're quite important historically. They give detailed history of the period we're talking about. First Maccabees especially gives a detailed history of what we're discussing here. And so a lot of what we know comes from them, also from the Jewish historian, um, also from the Jewish historian, uh, Josephus. So these offerings of swine flesh on the altar were to be offered monthly, and they were dedicated to Antiochus Epiphanes. And that precipitated what's called the Maccabean Revolt. And if I wouldn't be so long-winded, we'd have got a little further here, but I can see it's 8.04. <laughs> and uh, my, Somebody's marked on the screen again. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, somebody's marked on the screen, but I can't, uh, can't I kind of go up here to my uh, place where I should be able to bring down this top thing. And it won't, oh, there it does, finally came down. So I can, uh, what does it say here? Uh, annotate, clear, clear all drawing. All right, I want to stop.